You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight, we're talking about Cameron Crowe's 2000 film, Almost Famous. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war. No great depression. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Jeremy Benson. Yellow. And Paul Williams. What's up? We're here tonight to talk about Cameron Crowe's 2000 film, Almost Famous. Before we get into that, though, I did want to bring up, have you guys seen the Filmstruck website, what they're planning to do with the streaming service? Yeah. Man, this is pretty cool. I don't know if our listeners know about this. All right, so Criterion and uh, Turner Classic Movies getting together, and they're going to put a streaming service kind of like Netflix for film buffs. And I think the most exciting thing for, you know, our listeners and, you know, just film nerds like ourselves, they're going to have audio commentaries on here. So that's super cool. And they'll have some special features as well. So it's going to be a little bit different than just, you know, a streaming service like Netflix or Hulu or something. It looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, it's kind of funny, you know, we're talking about streaming service and then we're going to go into a movie where they obsess over physical products. I'm excited to talk about uh, Almost Famous because this is one of the first films I got to project. I was a projectionist in 2000, so I get to see this movie a lot through the through the you know the booth window. What do you guys think about Cameron Crowe? You guys fans of his? Yeah, Jeremy Maguire. That was that was actually the first Cameron Crowe film I saw myself. Oh, you skipped? Uh, uh, did you skip? Say anything? You never saw that with, with John Cusack? Well, I saw that. I saw that later. First one I yeah. saw was Singles. Man, you know what? Shame on me. Dude, I have never seen Singles. Oh, really? Yeah, never saw it, man. It's one of those that kind of just slipped through the cracks throughout the years. Everybody had that soundtrack, though, back in the day, right? Oh, yeah. I've, I mean, I've seen I've seen like bits and pieces of it, but I've never actually sat down and watched the entire movie. And I can't say I'm too familiar with Cameron Crowe's work after Vanilla Sky. I never saw uh, Elizabeth Town or Jesus. Aloha or any of those films. Really? Yeah, have you seen him? I saw Elizabeth though. Did you like it? It's all right. It's worth it's worth watching. It's a romantic comedy. All right, all right. Well, it's it seems to be like Cameron Crowe's thing. Like he's gonna work in a love story somewhere in regard like regardless of what story he's telling. It's gonna have. A, yeah, I really liked album. his Pearl Jam documentary. <laughs> I knew that was gonna come up. I mean, that was post Vanilla Sky. I actually really liked Vanilla Sky too. Oh, you like Vanilla Skylight? Yeah. You wow, know? dude, like you're one of the only few people that I've ever heard say that. I can't really comment. The last time I saw that was in the theater, and I haven't seen it since. But, uh, no, so Cameron Crowe's had a, a really, really interesting life, and this, this film's kind of, uh, kind of his story. This is, is a very personal story to him. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a writer for the Rolling Stones. At a very young age. Yeah, it was, uh, he was a teenager, a teenager writing for them. I don't think he was as young as the kid in the movie, but I may be wrong about that. No, no, I think you're right. I don't think he was... I think he was like 18. Yeah. But still, 18-year-old traveling with Led Zeppelin and the Allman Brothers is... Quite a life. Yeah. Yeah, especially back back in the 70s, man. Like, can you imagine the shit that dude saw? I think it was on the commentary. He did say he he did lose his virginity like the kid did in the movie. Like, he was on the (laughs) road, and he did lose his virginity while... The flower... (laughs) I think it's his best movie. And the Pearl Jam documentary was good. Was the Pearl Jam documentary good? You liked it. I don't... I, we didn't watch it. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. We did? Yeah. And afterwards you went, you know, yeah, for a documentary about music, that was pretty good. Huh. I don't remember it at all. Uh, when it was talking about, like, Mother Love Bone and uh, 
Andy Wood dying. And then, uh, I remember something like that. And then when Eddie Vedder was first joining the band, you, you thought all that was the most interesting part. No, he, he's he's really big into that whole scene. He, he was kind yeah. of around, right, when Pearl Jam got started. The whole grunge scene got started. Yeah, he was up there. He was kind of, with singles, was kind of help, what helped push some of that out. And Eddie Vedder's in singles, right? From what I, I remember, I was reading that somewhere. Yeah. All right. Okay. So look, this you know this guy's been there. He's with the these guys rocking out in the seventies, bringing in grunge in the nineties. He's there with the music, man. Married the lead singer of of Heart, or one of the singers from Heart. I don't know if she was the lead singer. Nancy Wilson. She, she was she was in Heart. I don't know what I don't really yeah. know much about Heart. She was, but her sister was the like the main lead singer. Nancy Wilson was the guitarist. I guess this is very much like a, a passion project for like his family, <clears throat> for his whole family and everything. And, and it was Steven Spielberg who finally said, "Go for it." Yeah, because he was uh, he was in charge of DreamWorks at that point. Well, he owned DreamWorks at that point. Right. And, uh, I forget the other two guys because they're not famous directors. Because <laughs> they're not Steven Spielberg. When Spielberg says, "Hey, direct every word," you listen to Steven Spielberg. You go out there and direct everywhere. Yeah, it's sort of like commands from Mount Olympus. Zeus has spoken. Yeah. Movies shall be made. I mean, the guy's usually right, you know? I mean... His track record is, is pretty impressive. All right, so what what uh, cuts did you guys watch in preparation for this evening? I watched the theatrical cut. Bootleg. Oh, you watched the bootleg? Yeah. That's, that's the one I think I prefer is the bootleg. Um, yeah, I watched both for this just, you know, just to get nerdy with it. Well, I used to have both on DVD, and I remember liking the bootleg untitled version better. Yeah, they didn't. They had their theatrical release uh, is not out on on Blu-ray. You can't get it. It's only available on DVD. That kind of stinks. I'm not a fan of being like if you have two versions. Like I, I, I like it when both versions are on the same disc. Or in the same set, at least. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, they don't have to be on the exact same set. But you know, don't I've... compress the shit out of it to get it onto one. <laughs> separate disc, same set. This is one of those movies that, like, from the very first screening, I fell in love with it. Well, it. I mean, I think it works on a lot of different levels. You know, it works in terms of like, yes, it's a movie for people that love rock and roll. And who doesn't love rock and roll, right? People that don't like rock and roll. Oh, those people exist. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess I guess there's, I'm sure there's people some. who love rock and roll, and then there's people who don't love rock and roll. So this movie is not for everyone, but it is for half of everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I also feel if like... you can make a movie for half of everyone, you did a damn good job. I also feel like it's a movie for fans too, people that love something and yeah. understand yeah, that that love yeah. of fandom. Yeah, connecting that. To an audience of like, yes, man, I I, under, I understand what these characters are saying. I and it also does that. like a cool a cool job of that kind of raising the veil on you know you you see the band on stage and they're bigger than life, but then behind the scenes they're talking to the roadies, they're having fun, and it's it's just this big group of people that are just doing. They have no clue what they're doing. They're not musical geniuses. They're arguing over T-shirts and who gets to be the mystique front guy. <laughs> oh yeah, the band squabbles were pretty. Uh, were pretty. And you point. can imagine this pretty much like what every band goes through. <laughs> Look, man, we agreed. You're the, <laughs> you're the guitarist. And I love. I love the drummer. Just he, he's just there. Like every drummer I know is like that. Like they, well, shit, the sure. bass player, the bass player and the drummer, like they're the two most distant members of the band. Like I think. The drummer has one line in the entire movie, and that's when he's like, fuck it, I'm gay. <laughs> On the airplane? I don't think that dude has one other line in that entire fucking movie. The, the bass player, he has a few other lines, but yeah, man, like their, their characters are not very prominent. You're telling this, you know, this coming-of-age story, this fandom story. It's laced with enough comedy that it just keeps all of it funny. Yeah, and it's that good comedy, too, where it's, yeah. like, kind of painful what? at the same time. Like Fever Dog work. and some of the other songs. They're actually, like, really catchy little rock songs. Oh, yeah, I liked Fever Dog a lot. Fever yeah. Dog! Yeah. Pearl Jam's Mike McReady playing lead guitar. 
Jason Lee's character is based on the, the uh, singer from Bad Company. The Russell Hammond character is loosely based on Glenn Fry from uh, the Eagles. It's a quote in that movie that uh, it actually came from Glenn Fry, and that's when uh, they're standing out by the pool, and uh, Russell looks at William and he's like, just make us look cool, man. Never been the biggest fan of the Eagles, but freaking awesome musicians. They really are. Another one thing I, I did notice going back and just looking at the history of this movie, Cameron Crowe won his Oscar for best uh, best original screenplay for this. Kate Hudson was nominated for best supporting actress. Why is that? Like her and yeah, Frances McDormand are both nominated for the yeah, same. It felt like she should have been like, if she was going to get a nomination for this, it should have been best lead actress, right? Wouldn't you think that it would go down to? Who has the more screen time and bigger role in the movie? Kate Hudson, I would say, had had more screen time in this movie, and you know, like she was she was the main actress in the movie, in my opinion. Well, it feels and, like the two leads are William and Penny she Lane. Put, yeah, I'll agree yeah. with that. And I mean, how 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 she got put as best supporting actress? I just I don't know. I just don't understand it. I do have a theory. Some of it may have to do with the studio, simply because Julia Roberts was definitely going to be nominated for Best Actress for Aaron Brockovich that year. Right. And I, I have a feeling the studio just wanted to push everyone away. That was could it the same win. studio? No, it wasn't the same studio. This was DreamWorks, and I, don't know, I can't remember who did uh, Aaron Brockovich, but I'm pretty sure it was not DreamWorks or Paramount. I think they were trying to keep Kate Hudson away because she did win the Golden Globe uh, for Best Supporting Actress this year. But I think they were just trying to keep her away from Julia Roberts. Big star, important role, kind of stuff the Academy eats up. Right. They're going after that. But Marsha Gay Harden did win for Pollock this year. But, man, dude, like I felt like she nailed her performance so good. Oh, I thought the nuances that she gave as Penny Lane were you can't help but both feel sorry for her and fall in love with her at the same time. Yeah, the women in this movie, freaking Frances McDormand, um, Kate Hudson, that um, Zoe Dushan or Dushanel yeah. or whatever her last name is. Man, she was good as the sisters. Like, all of them were great. They just nailed it. And the groupies, man. The Band-Aids. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm they sorry. They are not groupies. <laughs> the Band-Aids, yeah. Like, you know they're groupies. And, but then they, they, pronounce, they announce their rule that they do not have sex. Only blowjobs. <laughs> But then, you know, within a day of William being on the road with him, he sees that that's just all bullshit. They're having sex with anybody they can. And the women in this movie are great. But at the same time, like, Jason Lee's performance stands out. Having a brain fart on the guy that plays Russell, but he stands out as a good performance. Oh, Billy Crudup. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is awesome in this movie. Yeah, he is good, man. He steals the three or four scenes he's in, man. Oh, yeah. When he's in that radio station and he's just throwing those records around. I, my favorite my favorite scene with him in it, though, is, what are you listening to? Stillwater. Bam! Slams the phone down. The kid's on drugs. And just walks <laughs> off. Kid's on drugs. The shit that Lester Gang is wearing in the beginning of the movie when you first see him. The Guess Who? It's, uh, the Guess Who shirt. And that shirt actually came from backstage the Guess Who, at a Guess Who you know, concert. And if you notice later on in the movie... Um, when they have the argument over the T-shirts, William takes the Stillwater shirt and sticks it down in his bag before they run out of the room. If you don't watch the the bootleg cup, you miss, like, William, every place that he stops, he's constantly picking up souvenirs. Right. Man, I really missed that. And All right, now we need to get in the movie because I want to compare the bootleg to the original. <laughs> yeah, the only other random... Cameron Crowe seems to be a big fan of theirs, and on the on one of the audio commentaries, one of the actresses mentioned that during the filming of the movie, the only modern music they were allowed to listen to was Pearl Jam's Vitalogy. Why that? I think it was because of this one song, Nothing Man, but I don't. I couldn't find it. I didn't have time to research it, but I remember hearing that on a commentary and being like, "That's weird." I wonder. I wonder what the the thinking was or the rationale for that decision. Probably. Cameron Crowe's like, I like this band. You can listen to that. But other than that, we're just listen to 70 shit, guys. So with that, guys, we're going to play the trailer. We'll be back. 
The other kids make fun of him because of how young he looks. Nobody includes him. They call him the narc behind his back. They do? One day, you'll be cool. Let's see, you're the kid who's been sending me those articles from the school newspaper. Oh, what do you like, the star of your school? They hate me. This is Rolling Stone magazine. We got a couple copies of your stories. I think you should be writing for us. We can only pay, let me see, $700. All right, a grand. Does anybody remember last I'd like to interview you or somebody from your band. Oh, the enemy, a rock writer. How old are you? 17. Me too. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock star. They're going to fly you places for free. You're going to meet girls. Oh, God, it's going to get ugly. I am telling secrets to the one guy you don't tell secrets to. I know what's going on. Your mom called! I have family members with severe anxiety problems. Hey, you want to go to a party with some good people looking to have a good time? Don't take drugs! Don't take drugs! Your mom kind of freaked me out. It's Bowie! Rock stars have kidnapped my son. I am a golden god! All right, we're back. We're talking Almost Famous. Guys, what did you think of these opening title sequences? Title sequence, it's only one. But... My least favorite part of the movie. Wow, really? Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I, 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 just I just do saying. not like, I just don't, I've never liked it. I love the movie. I like everything else about it, but that opening title sequence just feels, I don't know. It feels like it's right, though. You know, it's about a, it's about a writer. You see, and he's writing the opening credits. Maybe it's just a little on the nose. <laughs> I don't know. That's it is a little on the nose, but I can I, go you, with on uh, the nose. You asked like that was the one part of the movie the first time I saw it that kind of stuck out as, huh? The only thing I think is weird about them is how they look like they're shot on VHS as opposed to like being shot on like eight millimeter or sixteen millimeter or something that would you know yeah would have been of available the time. yeah in seventy three. I thought that was kind of weird. I didn't understand exactly what they were going for. And it even starts in like what? Or 69, I think. 69, something yeah. like that. 69. Yeah, when they're in San Diego yeah, and 1969, stuff. yeah. Like all the rock and roll memorabilia and stuff. This room. Yeah, I like how it sets up and then it goes like... <laughs> it goes from that opening into that Chipmunk song, which I don't know why, but I just love that every time. Like how that flows into the next scene and transitions to the... All the 70s shot of their neighborhood in San Diego. Right. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but man, I think that this has one of the best of going, you know, going for that like retro feel, having that 70s look. In the year 2000, they don't make fun of the 70s look. It just looks authentic. They're not poking fun of it. It's not a joke. The fashion's not over the top. I want William's jacket. You know, it's, it's quite a work. You know, to get all the clothes authentic, and then plus you gotta close all the streets down, and then the vehicles. Imagine trying to find vehicles that are in pristine condition of you know nineteen sixty, you know nine Diego. I I don't want to imagine what that's like. <laughs> that's production designer hell is probably what that is. Yeah, but I mean, it was all done, and I mean, you know, it looks authentic. It doesn't look. You know, like you were saying, it doesn't look cheesy or over the top. It looks authentic. It looks natural. Movies that have bands of this, you know, in this era of the 70s, they kind of they go for these really, like, over-the-top wardrobe, like, bell-bottoms. A little and, like, bit too disco-y. Yeah, it's just kind of over-the-top. And, man, I thought these guys coming off the bus, I was like, man, they, they, well, I mean, they these guys look cool today. And... It's a good mix between realistic clothing and then you have some of the people like the groupies that are in their outrageous clothing and you see a lot of the fashions left over from the 60s late 60s that are still blending in like especially with like penny lane's wardrobe yeah. like some of her coats and stuff 
they did have like that leftover sixties going into yeah white hat. Well, uh, beginning of the film, what do you guys think of the family relationships here? This drama that's going on in the, the family. Thought it was done perfectly. Yeah, I think it does a good job of having a nice like layered relationships in the movie. Like the mom's hard, but you understand why she's doing what she's doing. She loves her kids. You know that's obvious. Maybe she's not always doing the right thing. She's doing what she thinks is best. Yeah. I even like the stereotypical mom in the 70s scene where they're like, she takes the uh, Sar- uh, Simon and Garfunkel album and like, look, they're on pot. <laughs> they're on drugs. It's like, that's that's got to be in every yeah, 70s rock. Yeah, right? That's That scene's in all those movies where it's like, look, these guys are in, on drugs. <laughs> you know what KISS stands they're, for, right? Poetry. Song that she plays when she's like, this song will explain the reason why I stay here anymore. It's just like, if you listen to the lyrics of that, it's like, look, I just don't even understand what the hell, why the hell you would even... Oh, man, I never even listened to the lyrics of that song, to be honest with you. I mean, I can't stop laughing, because when the sister is leaving, and she has the hair curlers... Right. That is hysterical. She's like, I gotta get out of here so quick. I'm not taking these things out. I'm leaving right now. I just thought, I, I never really paid attention to the song. I just assumed it was some emotional song that... Some rebellious teenager is overanalyzing. And- <laughs> the base of the song's really talking about like pretty much drugs and untrustable people. <laughs> That's pretty much what the what the content of the song. But it's perfect setup narratively though, because now you're leaving William, who we just found out his mom has lied to him about how old he is. Now you're leaving him in her care. So immediately you're sort of like, all right, how is she going to fuck him up? Well, yeah, I, I, like to, I like to talk about that for a minute because imagine how fucked your parents just lied to you and you were like two years younger than everyone else and you just didn't even know it. Yeah, that'd be a pretty fucked up revelation. Yeah, at 11, that would really be pretty bad. If 11. I suddenly found out now that I was two years younger than I thought, I'd be like, hell yes. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be- yeah, yeah. Oh, that works. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I like that shot that like conveys when it goes down with everybody. Like all the dudes are like, "Yeah, hey, look at my look at my little crustache I got going on right here." <laughs> and then it gets <laughs> to him, and he's dude, just like, man. "I'm serious, dude. That kid shaves that peach. I mean, he like he he combs that peach fuzz like no one else, man. I shit you not." A lot of these films have this coming of age story, but right. now it's like we're gonna set our coming of age back and make it more difficult and now it's a coming of age within an age because he got robbed of his adolescence and it's a nice layer man it's a smart way <laughs> well, it also too like you know you fast forward to 1973 williams older he's obviously still getting picked on because there's the, the the sign in front of the school william is not old enough to drive or fuck yeah and everybody's like but he is way cooler about it like he's not letting it bother him he's kind of grinning as he's walking by like you can tell, he's kind of been through all this. I think the beginning here with the the mom and the sister and this relationship building this is it's a nice stepping block. And going forward in the script, what I really like is that it's a it's a constant problem. Like it's a well, constant. Also, too, like it establishes really early that although his sister and his mom have differences, she likes him. She has a completely different relationship with her daughter than she does with her son. And almost at a younger age, she almost seems that she kind of trusts her son more than she trusts her daughter. Well, yeah. I mean, she's she's a teenager. I was more speaking of the relationship between the sister and the brother. Even though his mom obviously loves him and he respects his mom, he almost gets a little bit more love from his sister. Like, friendly type, listen to Tommy. You're going to yeah. be cool one day. And then later, when she finds him in the airport, it's it's her that brings him back home, and it kind of brings that whole little unit back together. It's a nice little bookend to me. All the characters always like, man, your mom freaks me out. Although I do love the scene when she's in, she's teaching, and she's like, "Rock stars have kidnapped kidnapped my son," and that one dude's look is priceless. One blonde girl who seems to be like right in every word she says. She just gives it, and she goes right back to writing again. And it's just like, did you just write down rock stars and kidnap my son? 
I actually think they should have cut that close up out. The one where she goes back in writing. Because that, that one dude's reaction, I was sold. I was good. It made me laugh. Yeah, cutting back to the girl taking the note was just a little bit. <laughs> it was a little too on the nose, and I didn't, I don't, I didn't find that one funny. But that one, that one dude's look was. <laughs> he was just like, "Oh damn, girl!" <laughs> <laughs> wasn't expecting that. You know, one thing that I was kind of thought was interesting about this movie too. I mean, there's a lot of drug references, but you really don't see that much drug use in this movie. Although I do love the scene where the um, radio host gets so high he passes out during the interview. Oh, yeah. Let's get, that's only on the bootleg cut. That's not in the original. That's a shame, too, because that the scene is hilarious. So funny. Right. Like I said, I've only seen the theatrical version. They go into a radio station, and they have an interview, and the DJ guy's all, man, he's so stoned. He he passes out and they start cussing on air. It's a it's a good scene, man. It's really funny. It's well done, and I really liked the bootleg cut. I usually don't like director's cuts or extended cuts that much. I usually think the theatrical cuts are usually the better, the more lean down version. But I do think this movie really benefits from all the more character beats and and getting into these groupies uh band-aids sorry you know speaking of these band-aids i like their introductory scene when william finally gets those gets that job and goes down to that ramp and we start meeting our our band members i man, i love the lighting awesome. in that scene oh at the ramp yeah right yeah dude that hmi kicking up over yeah. him oh, dude it is it beautiful it is so surreal and Penny Lane looks beautiful. The the band shows up. They look all grungy, like they've been on. It just it looks great. I man, I love how like mythic they look when they get off the bus, and they're coming down. And it's just like that. It's either handheld or dolly. I can't tell. The handheld works so smooth, but it's just following up the ramp, and they just come by. The way he turns and looks at him, and man, the kid is really good in this. Oh movie. yeah, and when he nervously like compliments him at the door. And they kind of all look at each other, well, come on! It's so, like, you can feel their ego being fed, and they want to hear that they're good. They really do. I'm a Cindy too. <laughs> yeah, Jason Lee, man. That's one thing I really like, too. They, they kind of hit at this uh, in the bootleg cut pretty early, that Jason Lee's character is a little bit jealous of the attention that the guitarist Russ Hammond's getting. One chick always screamed Russell in the, in the audience in every, almost every live performance in that movie. When any character comes up and greets the band, they're greeting Russell first. Right. And I always like J- Jason Lee's looks in the background, like, just like, motherfucker, or he's shaking his head yeah. like, I can't believe this shit. I get no goddamn respect around here. Like it, I wonder how much of that was pulled from Page and Plant. Man, you get that magic feeling of like, you kind of feel like you're going backstage yourself, like, oh, I'm getting a pass, oh, I get and to see. Just his enthusiasm, like when he's leaving and he's just, bye to everybody. But yeah, I mean, that's that excitement, just it's it's in that scene, and he, Cameron Crowe does a really good job of capturing it. And as a fan, you can understand yes. what that kid was feeling. Yes. It's so layered, and you have that awesome scene between um, William and Penny Lane where they're talking about their age. Right. And they're having that honest that honest moment, and then when Russ Hamill comes up, I right. that's a powerful moment, dude, oh, when they can, first just, meet. With their eyes, they're definitely telling a backstory, the emotional turmoil that is involved without saying anything. Yeah. There's a moment where she looks up, and then she just sort of looks down for a second and kind of looks away, and then he kind of brushes her hair, and it's all right there, you know. And such a well-timed tear, yeah, like, man. I mean, it's almost that, oh. like she doesn't, he really doesn't want to look him straight in the eyes, almost. Ah, oh, man, that is such a good scene. That's when you know, that's when you look at that, and you're just like, Cameron Crowe, I don't know what you did to get those actors to do that. Maybe they're that great. Do it again. <laughs> Take seventy five. All right, we got it. Moving on, but no, it, it man, it that is a tremendous moment in the movie, and how he handles those emotional transitions is well done. Like William, kind of like even notices it kind of right away after he you know kind of introduces them to one another. I, what I like so much about that look is how confused he is. Yeah. Where he you know he looks at one of them and then it, that insert where he's kind of like biting his notebook paper it's such a kid moment 
Like you, that's when you know he's still fifteen. His innocence isn't quite up to the yeah. what he's experiencing. Yeah. Exactly. That's so well put. Yeah, exactly. Now, by the end of the movie, he is well versed. Yeah, yeah. He 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 gets to experience quite a lot with these people. Of course, the movie goes. He goes on tour with the band. The Rolling Stone magazine ends up calling him up, offering him a job. He takes it, and his mom lets him go for four days max. No one at Rolling Stone knows that he's actually like fifteen. Oh yeah, that's true. That yeah, like they all think he's like a an adult. Well, I love too when he goes back to see Phil yeah. Hoffman, and Hoffman's like, "Dude, you gotta watch out! They'll rewrite your shit." He's all about like integrity, and do I take the job? Well, fuck yeah, you take the job. Man. He calls him, and he calls him swill merchants. So he's swill. It's still nothing but a bunch of swill merchants. Now, Philip Seymour Hoffman's very honest with him. You know, it's like, yeah, these guys are gonna make you feel like you're awesome because they want you to write good shit. Oh yeah, he's he tells him straight up how it's gonna be. And that is exactly yeah. what happens. Yeah, he's right on the money. I'm going to kind of skip to the I'm not skipping. We can still talk about the scenes in the middle, but I'm going to bring up a point that kind of you ties to the end. We're talking about him being 15. He goes on the road. He's trying to write this like real article on this band. And then when he turns in the real article and the band says none of it happened, you can imagine just how devastating that would be. To a 15-year-old who thought he had made friends, who, and bam, there it is. Everything Lester told him at the beginning that he didn't listen to happens. Right after that guitarist, the last time he sees him, like, write what you he want actually, to. He right. Actually, he actually looks kind of, uh, it looks kind of rough too, man. Like when he's sitting in the Rolling Stones at the end. He's not used to that party life, man. He's not used to that rock star life. Can't handle it. Hell, the rock stars can barely handle it. <laughs> Bands breaking up by the end of the tour. And I imagine that's probably exactly what it's like. Like, at the yeah, end of every tour, bands are all like, fuck, we're breaking up. This is it. I can't take these really, egos. Really, really Two is. years later, they're all like, let's get together. Let's do this shit. Yeah, do you, I can't imagine, like, anybody I'd want to spend, like, six months around, like, 24-7. Eventually, you'd want to kill the person. Right. For a while, I'd be like, man, I hate the way you breathe. It's not, it's not fun. It's not fun. I guess it depends on your the condition, especially if you're stuck in the tight, cramped space as it is anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, their tour like, bus was all right. Weeks. One of my favorite scenes on the movie happens on Doris. After, uh, there's a scene during the tour where Russell and lead singer get into an argument. Russell decides he's going to go into Topeka and he's going to he's going to meet some real people. He gets high on acid and that next day when the band manager gets him, they got him on the bus. Nobody's talking and Tiny Dancer comes on the radio. And one by one they all start singing the song together. And you can kind of get that feeling that for that moment, it's not going to last, but for that moment they all remember why they're there. They enjoy music. It's kind of like how they heal, right? Right. It's, it's like the song starts, they all hate each other, they're yeah. still all, well, I guess they all hate Russell at that point. It, it just, it, it reminds me of like a moment, like on a, on like on a movie set, I'm going to compare it to what, what I do. Like you can have a really bad day and everybody can be at each other's throats. But then that night somebody mentions a movie that everybody kind of likes. And before you know it, you're into this awesome t- conversation about The Shining and what happens in this scene. And it just sort of heals all those Angry feelings from the day. Yeah, no, that is a that's a really great scene, man. And it, 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 it is it is captured in that scene perfectly. I'm I'm not worried about music. Music music is kind of where the passion is. That moment in the movie, you can tell, is being made by somebody that loves cinema, but also loves music. Oh yeah, and and that love of both of those things yeah. comes across yeah. in the way that that shot, the way it feels. You're just like, he nailed it right there. I think the cast, from what he said in the commentary, were, were busting his balls about how many times he had to sing Tiny Dancing <laughs> on that bus. But he's like, yeah, let's go do it again. That's one of those, uh, that's, that's that's probably one of the best scenes in the entire film. That uh, And then I like the airplane scene a lot. It's uh, a little bit later, too. 
Yeah. Uh, those those are probably I mean, my I can't, two favorites. The airplane scene though always reminds me of Leonard Skinner because you know they they I don't know if yeah. you know, but they died in the airplane. And that scene always makes me think of, like, oh, Leonard Skinner died in an airplane. There was a bunch of uh, musicians in that time period that died on airplanes, right? Because yeah. the, song, the song that he's, uh, the song that Russell Hammond's singing is, is a Big Bopper song. Uh, Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and yeah. I believe it was Buddy Holly. Yep. All three died in the same plane crash. Yep. Oh, dude. When, when Russell just starts all of a sudden going off on William, and then Dick, the manager, looks back and he's like, oh, he only means half of what he says. And then he's like, well, which half? Was it because he was all drunk? Or, I mean, I, I really didn't get that. Well, he was on acid and he was drunk. And I guess we haven't really talked really much about the, uh, the Russell character, but he's the third main character. He kind of he makes the triangle. There's a love triangle between Russell, William, and Penny Lane that kind of develops slowly throughout the film. As the movie goes on, uh, Russell's just presented more and more as a complete dick. See, I thought that was a very, I thought that was really good writing. Oh, no, it is great writing. Because, I mean, by the end of the movie, he comes back to what I think he wants to be. Presented to him at the beginning, he's putting on a facade of what he wants William to think he is. But the more we get to know him, the more we realize he is a little bit of a dick. Oh, no, he's a total dick. He tells William go write what you want, but then when he reads it, he's like, "Holy shit, we're idiots!" And then he's a little embarrassed by what he reads. So then when he goes to the house later, Penny tricks him to go to the house later. I think he's kind of forcing himself to be humbled. I think that's the reason yeah. why he eventually okayed for it to be printed. When he's drunk and high, he he leaves saying, "I want to find something that's real," because at that point you're you're really getting told that. He's sort of living this fake persona. You know, even even Penny makes, you know, comments about going back to the real world in the movie. And it almost makes you think that, that, you know, that living this life, going from place to place, place to place every day, a lot of the people you're surrounded by, you're only surrounded by because you're famous. Before he, before he figures out it's William's house, and when he, he picks up that phone... To call Penny. Do you feel like some of the reason that he told the Rolling Stone it's okay to publish that story is just so he could get Penny? It's this layered humbling that's happening. It's like shells of this false rustler coming off in each step that he's taking that's getting him closer and closer to William's room in that one conversation that they have. That's one thing. Okay, I like the bootleg cut because you get those moments with those characters, man. You get a little bit more of the other band members and a little bit more of the Band-Aids, and I, I like oh, those. I definitely like those. This is one of those rare versions where it's like, you guys messed it up. You, you should have... Spielberg was right. Film every word. Yeah, because you, you watch the theatrical version after this bootleg cut, dude. It seems really rushed. A little personal note here. One of the things that like made this movie really cool for me was... That was the music I listened to. I was into my dad's records pretty young, so like pretty much when he's flipping through the records, other than adding in a bunch of Beatle records, that's what I had to listen to. So like during the whole eighties, Twisted Sister, all that, I wasn't into any of that. I was I was listening to the Doors and uh Led Zeppelin. So the soundtrack for this movie was just like Yes. This movie actually um Got me into some of these uh, other bands. Like, I, I yes, I knew the Rolling Stones, I knew the Who and stuff, but right. there were a bunch of like, there's some like, the Led Zeppelin song in here. I'd never heard that before. Um, oh, I'm a huge Zeppelin fan, and yeah, man, some of this music I'd actually never heard of before, and it kind of exposed Black me to that. Sabbath. You have Black Sabbath, Jimi Hendrix, yeah, Guess Who, yeah, I knew awesome. who the popular ones were, Guess like who. Iggy Pop. I knew who Iggy Pop was. You know, like the real yeah, big Iggy famous Pop, ones I knew, too. but like. Some of the more obscure ones that were kind of like 70s only, like, man, some of those are kind of, I didn't listen to them. I'm not of that era. I can't so. believe you just put Led Zeppelin in the more obscure. Well, to be honest Probably the you, biggest rock band of all time. And you're, well, I mean, you know, obscure bands like Led Zeppelin. and You know, man, I never. I, I, I know your I Led never, Zeppelin story, and yeah, I don't want I never, it in public. So. I, ne- I never got into Led Zeppelin. I'm sorry. It's just I was not exposed to it. I mean, there were radio stations. Again, XL102 that would play. You, know, you might hear Led Zeppelin 
on one track, and then you might hear Stormtrooper Pilots next. And they played new rock and classic rock. And I never really cared for classic rock uh, when I was a teenager. I I listened to more punk and, like, thrash metal and heavy metal and new metal and, you know, stuff like that. So you like metal. Yeah. Well, when I got into my 20s, I started listening to what really got me into classic rock was bands like uh, Creedy Clearwater Revival, which I already, you know, kind of grew up listening to them from my mom. My mom listened to the Stones and the Beatles. And, but I never really got into classic rock, you know, all that much until I was probably in my 20s. And, I mean, it's some of the greatest rock and roll music ever written. And when I say classic rock, I mean, I'm putting everything in the 60s and 70s <laughs> into that pot. I'm kind of surprised Pink Floyd wasn't uh, wasn't a part of the soundtrack, to be honest with you. Yeah, that is kind of an omission in the film. But are they, they, are they know, of that time period, though? Although, you think about it, like, we keep saying yeah, classic dude, Pink rock. Pink Floyd formed in the, 19, in the 60s. We we do have to realize now that like everything that came out in like the nineties is now considered classic rock. What really? Yeah. How old does something have to be before it's classic? Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, yeah. think about it. Pearl Jam's going in the Hall of Fame next year. It's twenty five years. Guns and Roses are classified as classic rock, and so is bands like Poison and and all those eighties glam bands, Motley Crue. All that all that's considered classic rock now. But I think wow. traditionally, traditionally, people think of classic rock as that that starting wave of the '60s and '70s. Accepted version of classic rock is anything 25 years or older. Is according to Google here, it looks like that's the accepted time frame. Yeah, that's so like crazy. Nirvana, classic. All those, all those bands. Allison Allison Chains, Chains, classic. Dinosaur Junior, Pearl Jam, classic. <laughs> And everybody is feeling yeah. old as fuck well, I mean, right now. <laughs> you, get into that, you could classify you could classify bands as like Misfits would be definitely classic rock. Metallica. So a lot of the bands we listen to as teenagers yeah, definitely are becoming classic rock. Now that now that everybody that listens to this podcast is over the age of thirty is crying and we just made them They're all gonna sorry, get nostalgic guys. and they're gonna go in and turn on their Bush album. <laughs> They're going to go listen to some Jim Blossoms. <laughs> hey, guys, I think we need to queue up everything Zen right now. <laughs> some dude's going to have that Creed song, My Own Prison. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. What is going on here? Oh, God. I to... Like, if there's ever oh, been a band that for some reason, the very first song I heard, I hated them, was Creed. I don't know why. I usually don't like say things that I don't like about. Uh, I could not stand Creed. You listen to that album a lot, dude. They had I one. You listen to that fucking. First they had a song album. that was on the end of uh, Halloween H two O. It plays during the credits, and I bought I bought that soundtrack. I was like, hey, McQueen's not so bad. <laughs> why? Why is everybody hating on this guys? What's oh, going on? I, I didn't even know. Did people hate on him? Oh yeah! No, nobody, nobody hated on the band. Nobody oh. hated on the band. What were they hating on? See, I, didn't, I had no didn't idea. Didn't like their fucking singer. Why would the singer do? Like he was supposed to be all Christian and shit, and this dude, like, he got all drunk and beat his wife up at the airport and got arrested for that shit. Well, I mean, everybody has their fault. <laughs> it's no worse than what the, from <laughs> Def Leppard. I mean, drummer from Def Leppard got his got arrested too for beating his damn wife. And that dude's got one on. I can just see the. I don't know why, but all of a sudden I'm picturing the lead singer from Creed like wearing a wife beater with some mustard stains on it. And he's got that's a big what he belly. wore in that video, isn't it? It's like a white wife beater with some black black leather. No, get pants. the fuck out of here! Yeah, really? He's a white wife beater. Oh my gosh, dude. Okay, so yes, so yeah, my... yeah, he is. I he's got those dude, pleather, like... He's got those fucking pleather pants. Back, back, back to almost famous here. Oh my goodness. So there's that scene when William enters the room and they are playing the poker game and they actually sell off Penny Lane to yeah. another band. There's that scene where, like right afterwards in the bootleg cut where Penny Lane's having a birthday and they bring out a cake and they celebrate her birthday. 
you know, William just he can't take it anymore because now he knows that she's she got sold off to another band. She's unaware of this. They're all celebrating this crap. He can't take it anymore. He walks away. Man, fucking Kate Hudson owns this scene where they walk out in that field and he just tells her. He gets as angry as he possibly can, musters up his courage. He's like, You got sold for beer and 50 bucks. And when she looks at him and she asks, What kind of beer? And she smiles. And then they keep, the, they keep that scene going. Where most people, I feel like, would have cut on that smile. Well, yeah, and you, her fo- smile fades away. But you can totally like see that, like, to him, all of this abuse, all of this just looking at people as not people is all new to him. But she's been there, and she doesn't know why she keeps going back. It hurts every tour, it, but she just does it. And then there's another guy and, that's referenced that know, she had it, some, like, huge love affair with. Some other rock star that, like, broke her heart. Somebody from the Almond Brothers, maybe? Uh, I, can't, I can't. It's during the Hyatt scene, right? Yeah. Or they mentioned somewhere, and she's like, oh, one of the Band-Aids is like, oh, yeah, it's super famous. She's retired. Man, they go to New York right after that. And that kick-ass Led Zeppelin song comes on. Oh, yeah, that's true. That is when the, one of the Led Zeppelin songs. Uh, how many are in this? Two? Is Three. It two? There's three? There's three. Wow. There you go. And not many movies have uh, no. used Led Zeppelin songs, no, no, right? No, 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 no. They're very, 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 very picky about who they... Why is that? They have a bad experience on something? or Because they're Led Zeppelin and they do what they want. They're like, we're fucking Led Zeppelin. Dude, we're so fucking awesome, bro. Apparently, I was reading yesterday, I read it out loud to you, that Cameron Crowe took the film and screened it to Jimmy Page and Robert Plant in London just so he could get permission to use one of the songs in the movie. When they get to New York, Russell's wife or his girlfriend ends up showing She's up. listed on IMDb as his ex-wife slash girlfriend. His ex-wife slash girlfriend? So, yeah, that's what trivia on IMDb calls her. In the movie, I always thought it was his wife. They say it's his wife, but it's like they're kind of like on again, off again. Maybe that's why it was listed as his wife slash or ex-wife slash girlfriend. That makes sense. I'll buy that for a dollar. We're talking about that moment when they first meet each other, and now the moment you get the when opposite. They, yeah, the last time these two characters see each other face to face. Man, I thought that was brilliant, dude. That is, it's like beautiful you know, script writing. How do you get? And here, talk about beautiful script writing. How do you get three dudes that do podcasts on like action movies and horror films to talk about your romantic comedy? You fill it full of rock music. <laughs> Rock music, sex, and we're like, it's a great movie. You break it down, it's really sort of a sappy romance. Yeah, it is a sappy romance, but again, that's what's great about it, right? There's so many different layers. Like, oh, yeah. everybody's got their own motivations for everything. It all makes sense. You can follow it, and it's, like you said earlier, layered. And you feel it. Like, as a fan, anybody that's a fan of movies, comic books, mu- music, you know what it's like to be a fan. So you know what William is going through, and then that whole, like, you look up to these people, and now you're seeing them as, like, you're seeing all their flaws with no bandages on. The next scene after, when Penny Lane runs out, William goes and gets her, goes to the hotel. She's taking the Quaaludes. I can't think of Quaaludes when I think of that scene in (laughs) In Wolf of Wall Wall Street. Street. I know, right? (laughs) This is, like, this is definitely the PG version of that. (laughs) But, like... I I thought this was so great, like him having this so romantic moment with this chick that's completely passed out. And I thought this was the one moment where it was kind of dark in the movie, the pumping of the stomach, they have the right. doctor come in. I thought that was kind of a dark note to end that on. But I think that's also kind of what opens her up, like during that moment, who was there with her? So that that is what gives her that final step. We We get the feeling that every tour, she's right back there with Russell, but after that moment... She's off to Morocco. In the plane, when, the, when they go through the electrical storm and everybody kind of just, like, gets everything off their chest, like, their manager's wife, like, the whole entire band slept with this dude's wife. And then that's when Jeff tells Russell he slept with his old lady when they were broken up or whatever. Yeah, why does everybody just get everything off their chest, you know, right, right before we think we're going to get ready to die? I think the best one, though, is, like, Jimmy Fallon's when he's... <laughs> He's like, I hit this guy. I don't know if he's alive or dead. I see him every night in my dreams. It's just, oh, it's like, 
Yeah, I could totally see that that being being everybody's last moment. And Jason's really like, man, I don't want to die with you fucking assholes. I never, we never loved you, man. None of us did. You know, you're better than we are. You think you're above us all. And then he turns around and tells uh, Russell's girlfriend slash wife, you know, that he loves her and shit. And she's like, oh, cut it out, Jeffrey. And, and Russell's like, Jeffrey? The airplane scene reminded me of that Pearl Jam documentary that Cameron Crowe did and where the band was getting mad at Eddie Vedder because they were flying on a jet and he was traveling in a van to the next show. And it's just like, dude, if you got to be part of the band, you got to be part of the band. <laughs> you know, at the time, probably biggest band in the world be like Fugazi and, you know, drive the van to the show. And they're showing up at the show playing the fucking Shea Stadium. <laughs> the rest of the band had to be like, look... We need to talk. You need to come back to the real world here. No matter how much you want to be a little indie band, that's just not who we are anymore. It's great. I think Russ summed up like uh, the the whole rock and roll experience best when he's like, he was like, "Didn't we get into this whole thing to avoid responsibility?" And it's like, there's I another line. There's another line he says in there that, as a you know, as a rock fan sums up a question I, I have sometimes. Like you'll hear bands and their their early stuff is like great man it sounds awesome then you listen to like their later stuff and it's like man it's not as it's not as good and russell mentions that they, he doesn't want to get to the lifestyle management where you're just doing it to do it and i was like man that's an interesting term i wonder if that's like an actual musical like inside the industry type term he had that other moment where he he made some comment to william about how he used to be able to hear music like all around him yeah, in the world. Yeah, hear the world, and, and now yeah, he, he can't just hear anything. Yeah, they don't really bring it up again, but it's kind of like, is this corporate mentality and you having to feel obligated to take no, care of these guys? I'm not going to say any names, but I've talked to people in the film business that have reached a certain level of success and doing it, you know, as a living, don't enjoy it anymore. Oh man, that's, that straight up sucks. misses being able to go and. You know, write a script and shoot what you want and tell the story that you want. Russell surpassing the other members of the band. And, you know, that, that obviously it does. It does cause a big conflict because he's become better, well-versed at his instrument. Well, at the same time, too, I think kind of what was, in my opinion, what, what I took from that was he's getting a lot of immediate, the media attention, but at the same time, as a guitar player, he he's just a guitar player without a singer and a bass player and a drummer. It's the it's the band that creates the energy, and I kind of took it as that Russell was letting his media go to his head, and that's part of that humbleization that he has to realize later in the movie, and why yeah. you see them on tour again with the same band is he realizes that, hey, I may be an awesome guitar player, but I'm only an awesome guitar player if this guy's giving me awesome vocals. I did like that that they showed them like that. It was it's only like one shot I think, but at the end where you see them on the next tour, yeah. that was a I liked that that wrap up. I thought that was cool. It's like oh, okay, those guys are all right. It was one real cool thing like uh, listening to the commentary. Commentary is very personal. Not a lot of like factual information on it. Um, it's mostly him talking to his mom and his family members. But I think the the real standout thing that just blew my mind was that a lot of the locations that they shot at were locations that he actually went to and experienced a lot of this stuff at. Like when they're walking down the sidewalk with uh, Lester Bangs after them doing the radio interview, yeah, that's the real street that Cameron Crowe talked to Lester Bangs on. That's that's kind of crazy, man. And they had to go back and make some things seventies accurate, but. Because I think one of the hotels didn't exist. And that exist would just be and... weird to, like, go back and shoot moments from your own life. Like, Yeah, right? For me, it would be really hard not to just completely fictionalize. Yeah, at this point, that's where the giant lizard... I promise, I was there! Pretty sure that the, the original name for the movie was uh, either Untitled. Uncool or The Uncool. Yeah, that's actually the, blue, the, the bootleg cut. Actually, that's the title that comes on the screen is Untitled. It's not, it's not almost famous or anything. It's in the handwriting credits they re, they retitled it. Which I always wondered yeah. was that a reference to like the name of the article, untitled, or 
was it just an untitled screenplay? And they went all the way through to almost the finish before they went, well, fuck it, let's call it Almost Famous. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they went with that original title. But that's the one Cameron Crowe was really stuck on, and DreamWorks was like, nope, you can't name it that. Titles are a bitch, man. <laughs> Dude, titles uh, are. Dude, like, just, all right, we'll use this for a moment. Our, my new movie, Girl in Woods, Brian edited it, comes out June 3rd. Yep, that's right. On VOD everywhere. And we'll reveal here, this is a little little behind-the-scenes moment before the movie comes out. The reason the damn thing is called Girl in Woods is not an artistic choice. We literally were just calling it that, like, behind the scenes before the movie started getting made. We were like, the Girl in Woods script. And it was just sort of an abbreviation for that script about the girl in the woods. So we we stuck it on the script, and it got stuck on the slate, and then... By the time we were we were we were editing, we were like, "Fuck the name of it's Girl in Woods." Just go. With it. I don't think anybody else could ever come up with a, another title. Yeah, we tried. Like, so no, it wasn't anything trying to be super artistic. We just we we're just lazy and couldn't come up with a different name. Yeah, like well, everything else, it, it, we all everything else sounded pretentious. Yeah, it sounded like a douchey movie. It's just like such and such labyrinth, and it's like, nah. is this a Muppet movie or what's going on here? No. And yeah, so after like a couple of years of just referring to it as Girl in Wood script or Girl in Wood shoot, we just left the title on. I did think it was funny that one reviewer kept calling it The Girl in the Woods. Well, we knew that was going to happen. Yeah, he's like, I got to put that article in there, man. I can't just say Girl in Woods. It doesn't make sense. God, these guys are fucking idiots, man. <laughs> God, what a bunch of fucking morons. And we knew, we, we like, serious, many talks on people being like, and we even had, like, the, the, well, dude, don't worry. Distributor will change it. Nope. <laughs> it just keeps getting stuck just right there. And we knew. we like People are going to give us a hard time about this. They're Either, like, half people are going to think we're being pretentious, and then the other half are just going to think we're idiots. What are you going to do, man? And the truth about it is, is we just, it, it, was a, it was sort of an accident, and then it just sort of stuck. Our listeners, y'all have a little insight on the movie that comes out June 3rd. Please check it out. Cause... Go check it out. June 3rd, Comcast, Amazon, iTunes, all that Anywhere shit. you can buy VOD stuff. Yeah. I mean, we come every week. We talk for hours for your entertainment. <laughs> Support us. Apparently, according to Mintloss... Before Crow could the movie, the original title was untitled, and then it was the uncool. But the studio told him to rename it. I used to go to concerts, and I would see Mick Jagger. Then off to the side, these people standing by amplifiers. Crow explained, um, "You look at them and think, who are they? Are they groupies? Are they friends of the promoter? Are they married to the bass player? Because they're almost famous." Boom. There you go. Let's uh, we'll just we'll just go around. Paul, what are your thoughts of Almost Famous? It's an awesome movie. It's a nice coming of age film um, that has heart, and any film and music lover would definitely enjoy it. I think. All right, Benson. I think the untitled version is a better version. So, if you're looking to, if you've seen the theatrical version and you haven't seen the untitled version, go check it out. Unless you just hated the theatrical version, then something's wrong with you. But you are an idiot if you hated that. <laughs> I just I don't know, it's just one of those movies I just can't imagine anybody hating. Like Shawshank Redemption. It's just one of those movies that even if you're not loving it, you're not gonna hate it. No, I mean I yeah, I don't I don't think you could hate this film. I mean it's it's too much feel good entertainment right. in here, right? Like unless I guess unless you're a person that's like I hate feeling good about things, I only want to feel depressed. I play hate my everything that other people like. <laughs> play my dark hipster emo music now. Oh my goodness, where are my skinny jeans? But yeah, this is a this is a real good movie. Performances pretty much great all around. Um, I thought the guys in the band they all looked the part. They did a great job. Billy Crudup did a fantastic job. I thought he looked the he was born to play that part, but even Jason Lee, man, like yeah, with the hair, right, and the, the fucking the way his beard looked, right? He's, he's he steals some scenes. But yeah, dude, he's got so much charisma, dude. He just eats up the 
fucking screen, dude, when he's yeah. on, I feel like, you know? There's something about Jason Lee. He's storming out of that room. And I'm going to say it. Your looks have become a problem. <laughs> it's like, God, the guy, is that an ad lib line? It's... Man, yeah, they're all Everybody. Great. There's not a there's I don't really have a, a single negative thing to say about this film. And there's some shots of Penny Lane where you will just fall in love with her. There's shots where you just feel so bad for her. Oh man, dude, her lo- her looks can break your yeah, heart. That's really true. Yeah, and warm it up at the same time. No, it's it's a really good movie. Um the fi- my my favorite Cameron Crowe film that I've seen. Uh, I have not seen all his work, obviously. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Uh it's a good movie, layered uh, all the characters and motivations, I feel like they all, everything makes sense. There's a lot of it. It's a lot of good stuff going on in this movie. You definitely owe it to yourself to check this out. It's a brilliant screenplay. All the films that we've covered, this is hands down the one in the script writing department. I feel like just it's the bee's knees above everything else that we've talked about so far. Um, well, maybe with the exception of uh, Empire Strikes Back. Now, you know, I'm not I'm not getting too crazy. That's also a very good script. All right, so that's going to do it for us tonight. We are the Movie Crew Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's the movie crew. Crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, extra E at the end, at gmail.com. And like always, if you guys could please leave us uh, rating reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. That helps people find out about the show. We appreciate that so very much. And like always, we close out. This show every night with a piece of the soundtrack. Tonight we're going to play two songs. The first thing we're going to play is Nancy Wilson's Cabin in the Air from Almost Famous, which was a track that was not released previously. And Cameron Crowe has this for free. You can download on his website, theuncool.com. It's the official Cameron Crowe uh, webpage that he has. And hey guys, you can go and download this song for free. It's super cool, super awesome that he does that. We're going to play that. And then right afterwards, we will be playing Stillwater's Fever Dog. Enjoy. Enjoy.